Welcome to this episode of The Beat, the companion series to Policed in Ireland, which looks at news, research and other developments related to policing. Two weeks ago, the general scheme of a new Policing Security and Community Safety Bill was published. This bill was a recommendation of the Commission on the Future of Policing, which reported 2.5 years ago, and aims to reform many aspects of policing in Ireland, including oversight, functions, powers and so on. It's a huge bill, almost 400 pages, and it'll take time for it to get through the legislative process. I have a particular interest in it as a member of the Commission of the Future of Policing, but I genuinely believe that every person in society should be interested in it because all of us are affected by it. So over the next while, I'm going to break the bill down into different components and, and discuss the importance of different parts with expert guests. One of the significant developments in the PSCS bill is to address the issue of oversight and accountability for the use of security and terrorism powers. This has long been an issue in Ireland, with everything from internment to the heavy gang, from the standing of guard evidence to lengthy powers of detention being a concern at different points in time. We've always given the guards very significant powers in this area, primarily under the Offences Against the State Acts, and we've rarely had much oversight of those powers. Indeed, the policing authority is partly called that because its oversight functions relate solely to policing and not to security. What we do have are a number of what are called designated judges who have been given roles to review the use of certain key powers and who provide annual reports to the Taoiseach. So while police will have to apply for judicial authorization to conduct some surveillance, we also have this post facto review of how these powers then get used. These designated judges exist for both covert surveillance and interception of communications, as well as retention of data. The annual reports submitted to the Taoiseach are brief, between one and 10 pages in length, and largely include a summary of activities. So the level of oversight is unclear, and it only applies to very particular types of powers. One of the questions the Commission had been asked was whether Angarda should continue to be the security agency of the state. Most European countries separate out the functions of security and policing. The Commission was clear that the security functions should not only rest with Angarda and proposed new structures and strategies to address this, as well as strengthening the existing security capabilities. There was absolute clarity from the Commission that greater accountability and oversight of security powers were required. And so it recommended the establishment of an independent examiner of terrorist and serious crime legislation based on the model used in the UK, stating the examiner would maintain a continuous review of how security legislation is being implemented by police and other agencies and evaluate the case for changes needed to match the evolving threats while respecting fundamental rights. And so now we have this being proposed in the PSCS bill. And this long introduction gave context to my guest today. I'm really thrilled to be joined by Lord David Anderson, Baron of Ipswich. David was a highly successful barrister and is now a member of the House of Lords. And we're talking to him today because from 2011 to 2017, he held a position of independent reviewer of terrorism legislation in the UK. So he performed the role which exists in the UK and indeed, the Commission met with him and his predecessor to discuss the office when we were doing our work. Um, so we're really, I'm really, really thrilled that we get to talk to him today about what his work was like and what the, you know, his experience of what's necessary to have in that office, the powers, the resources and so on. Um, so thank you, David, for um, joining us today. Really pleased to have you. Um, could I ask by just, could you outline what your functions were as the independent review of terrorism? 
Well, the job goes back a long way. It had its origins in the 70s when the IRA started uh, setting off bombs in England. And for the first time in our history, we started having counter-terrorism laws in Great Britain, as opposed to simply uh, on the island of Ireland. And um, Parliament was prepared to pass these laws, which made provision for extended powers of stop and search and police detention and so on, but felt uneasy that since members of Parliament are not security cleared, uh, they would not know how these laws were being applied in practice. So as a condition of passing into law these embryonic uh, counter-terrorism laws, Parliament required a trusted person, who we call the independent reviewer, the equivalent of your examiner, um, who would have an anarchic combination of qualities. First, they would be completely independent from government. Secondly, they would have access to all the secrets, all the classified information. And when you put that together with a statutory obligation on the Secretary of State to publish their reports, uh, you do see uh, why this was a token of good faith, really. It's, it's the government saying to Parliament and to the wider public, we have to do a lot of stuff in secret uh, in order to combat terrorism. We know some of you are quite suspicious about uh, what we do and why we do it and how we do it. So here as a token of our good faith is somebody who can look at it all and report publicly on how it's going. And somehow that job has survived since 1977. And I think it's really survived because the holder of this post has not been a creature of the government who's simply there to legitimate everything government has done, but nor has the holder of the post uh, been just another uh, civil liberties NGO who loves to condemn uh, everything the state is doing. Uh, you have to give the state something to make the job look worthwhile. Uh, but equally, you have to criticise the state where criticism is due uh, if um, the job is to retain its, its public credibility. And you ask about the functions of the job. It seems to me that, in essence, uh, they're exactly the same as the functions of the examiner in Ireland. Uh, because if you look right back to 1977, when Lord Shackleton, son, incidentally, of the Antarctic explorer, uh, was commissioned to be the first independent reviewer, um, he was asked uh, to have particular regard to the effectiveness of the legislation. In other words, uh, is this legislation effective? Is there more we could do to make it effective? but also to its effect on the liberties of the subject. So you're facing both ways. And when you're reviewing the operation of the laws, that's what you're doing. In the UK, uh, the independent reviewer looks mainly at laws specifically designed to deal with terrorism. So we're looking at powers of stop and search, detention, uh, various executive orders, uh, powers that operate at ports and airports, um, prescription of banned organisations, that sort of thing. Um, but the functions are wider in practice uh, because the reviewer may be asked to conduct reports on other things as well. So I did reports, for example, on deportation with assurances, uh, deprivation of citizenship, uh, investigatory powers, which I know is a, a major part of the examiner's job in Ireland, but wasn't actually part of my, my job description. And then very interestingly, we had some big, big attacks um, in 2017 in London and Manchester. Uh, I did a, a, a series of reports on intelligence handling uh, by MI5 and our other intelligence agencies and how that might be improved. Um, so a fairly wide range, but the job description as written is a good deal narrower uh, than it will be in Ireland. So, and even that history is really interesting that, as you say, like terrorism within, you know, uh, literally on the ground of um, Great Britain, um, 
you know, was relatively new in the 70s. So when those powers came, the oversight came with it. Whereas I suppose in Ireland, that threat was always there since the state was founded. You know, civil war and the offences against the state act dates back to 1930s and there was preceding legislation before that. And, and that perhaps explains at some level why we've never really had that oversight before. Uh, because at the, at the time, oversight of policing wasn't something we did anyway. Um, so it's interesting to even think about, you know, to question why haven't we had this before? Because a lot of people were asking for it. So with those functions, then you're you're doing two primary things. You're you're assessing whether the legislation is kind of sufficient or appropriate. And then you're doing a kind of macro level review of how the legislation has been used in any given year. Would that be accurate? Well, the basis is, is how it's been used. And in particular, have there been changes in the way it's been used? If there might have been a huge increase, for example, in the number of people who had their citizenship removed, which we saw a few years ago. That's something you'd want to get into. Um, but once you've done the basic factual stuff, on the, uh, there's some pretty good statistics, both in, in Northern Ireland and in, in GB, um, then you get into... First, are the laws effective? And secondly, are they impinging unduly on people's civil liberties? Okay. And what kind of, like, did you just have access to absolutely everything? What were you looking at when you did that job? Well, your Irish law is a huge improvement on ours, which is a patchwork of statutory provisions that's grown up over time. So I didn't have uh, a right written down anywhere uh, to see all this uh, secret material. There were various assurances given by ministers in parliament and so on. In practice, I saw absolutely anything that uh, I thought was relevant. And the reason I could do that was uh, because I had in my back pocket uh, the weapons, if you like, of attending parliamentary hearings and complaining to them that I hadn't been given everything I wanted. I only had to do that once. And as a sort of nuclear option, I never had to do this and I wouldn't have wanted to do it. You could go to the press and, and say, look what the government won't let me have. And of course, any journalist loves a story like that, you know, the government suppressing information from its own watchdog. So although the statutory guarantees were not there on paper, as they will be in Ireland, uh, yes, I did have quite remarkable access. Uh, of course, how do you know they're showing you everything? Uh, part of the skill is knowing what to ask for. But as you get into the job and you begin uh, understanding how intelligence agencies operate, how counterterrorism police operates and so on, you begin to get a pretty good feel. And of course, people talk to you as well. And I had a little office insight inside the Home Office in London, which I, I didn't use all the time, but I used to use to look at uh, classified material. And it was a very useful place to be because quite often people would just, uh, as they were passing, they'd, they'd just come in and, and have a chat and, and say, oh, by the way, there's, there's something I don't know if you're interested in having a look. And I wouldn't exactly call it whistleblowing, uh, but these were good civil servants um, who hadn't necessarily drunk the Kool-Aid, perhaps hadn't even been offered the Kool-Aid, but they did see something that they thought was wrong and I could look into it for them. So I, I had a, a relationship, I think, of mutual trust with government, and you need that. I'm sure if they hadn't trusted me, they would have found all sorts of ways of stopping me from seeing stuff I, I, I really needed uh, to trust. Um, but if they can see you as a, a critical friend who's going to call them out sometimes, uh, but who's also going to uh, be brave enough, and this requires equal courage, incidentally, sometimes to stand up and say, you know what, the government have got this right then uh, you are not only tolerated, but I think welcomed, because, of course, the fact you were doing that job helped them sell what they were doing 
to the public. Uh, one had to be very careful not to be annexed into their agenda. Uh, but at the same time, the reality was that they would swallow a certain amount of, of criticism and they would act on a certain amount of criticism um, because they could see that it was in their interest for what they're doing in this very sensitive space to be independently reviewed. Because that's the thing, like it is a hugely sensitive space, like all of this is so political. I mean, people will remember UK government attempts to extend terrorism detention to 42 days, like, and, you know, like it's the kind of stuff that it it is deeply political. Um, And so having that assurance, that, that ability to assure the public that, yes, we have these powers, but they are being overseen independently. Um, it's really important for a government, isn't it? Yes. And they actually tried to extend to 90 days mm. under Tony Blair and then to 42 days under Gordon Brown. My first three or four years as reviewer between 2010-2014 were very unusual in any country because we saw a rolling back of those severe laws. It had been 28 days maximum uh, detention before a charging decision was taken. That was rolled back by 14 days uh, to 14 days by the coalition government in 2011, and it it remains there. So it's actually a, a, a lower period, a shorter period than it's uh, than it's historically been. Um, but yes, um, sorry. I've, would that have been that. would that have been something that you'd have participated in? So, like, you know, given that the reviewer can talk about the appropriateness, like, would the reviewer say something like, given the current threat levels, we no longer need, you know, 28-day detention? And or, or would you have stayed away from that kind of Oh, no, absolutely. That's absolutely um, what, what, the, what the job is about. And indeed, some of the early reviewers, Lord Shackleton, Lord Jellicoe, who was a son of an admiral, you know, these are these are World War I admiral, these were the heroic days of independent review. They were saying throughout the worst of the troubles, we don't think you need this power. We think this one is being wrongly used. We think a lot of Irish people are very angry about the way they're treated at the ports. You know, these, these alarms were coming up the whole time and they were being published. Sometimes they were being listened to, sometimes they weren't. But of course, one of the the secrets of the job, and I'm sure that the examiner in Ireland uh, will discover this, is it's not simply a question of making recommendations and hoping the government will adopt them. And why should they? I mean, the minister sees all the same secret stuff that I see. The minister also has political considerations in mind, budgetary considerations in mind. Uh, There's no reason why the minister must uh, do everything that the examiner says. But if you can also use that influence through parliament uh, through the Doyle, through the courts, then you're in business. I would often find that I made a a finding of fact or I made a recommendation that would be picked up by a barrister uh, who would then use it in a judicial review in the high court. And the judge would say, well, yes, I do think, you know, this is irrational or this policy failed to take into account relevant considerations or I'm persuaded by what Mr. Anderson said about the definition of terrorism being too wide. You know, all these things would happen. And similarly, parliament, you know, the government can easily afford to ignore someone like me. I'm not someone with any public standing or or political value. Uh, But if I give evidence to a powerful committee of our parliament, and parliament then, be it the Joint Committee on Human Rights or the Home Affairs Select Committee, uh, starts recommending uh, that I was right, then the government listens because it's their own backbenchers, it's the opposition. Uh, They realise that they might be in a political fight if they don't do uh, anything about it. So I, I saw the job as really harnessing a lot of ideas that came from other people. A lot of them came out of universities. They came out of NGOs. They came out of uh, people I met traveling the country, traveling other countries. 
uh, who told me their experiences about things. My job was to present that in a form that could be assimilated by the civil service in Whitehall, by politicians in Westminster, and to use Parliament and the courts in order to help achieve uh, change where I thought change was needed. Very often, change happened. Sometimes, inexplicably, it didn't. But that's politics. It sounds just listening to you like, you know, and I, I've sat in positions like, you know, the policing authority and so on. But I, I really get that sense of the strength of objectivity required, um, you know, to be aware of when there is politics at play on an issue that you're reporting on. And, you know, but always standing true to those kind of concerns around human rights or or what powers does the state need as opposed to want. Um, yeah, it sounds like a... A challenging line to walk. Yes, and the threats aren't always from the direction you might think. I remember being uh, interrogated once by Harriet Harman, in the who, who's a great civil libertarian and, in fact, the mother of the House, the most senior uh, female politician in our parliament. And she was saying, did the government put you under a lot of pressure to toe the line? And I, the answer was no. They wouldn't have been so stupid as to try and put me under pressure. I could maybe think of one or two examples of very mild pressure. But what I told her is I felt much stronger pressure as an independent member of the bar, someone who's been fairly active with in academia and with NGOs. You know, there is a very strong pressure to do the liberal thing and to suspect mm. the state and to accuse it of wrongdoing. And I, I think you know that pressure is is no less. Indeed, I would say it was greater. Some of the NGOs, um, some of the, the lobby groups um, have no qualms at all about putting you under considerable pressure. I mean, remember I made some comments once about whether the, there was um, racial discrimination inherent in the uh, choice of people to stop at ports and airports. Uh, and I said, well, uh, the numbers are certainly disproportionate to the, uh, to the numbers of uh, people of colour in the population as a whole. Um, they're even disproportionate to the number of people of colour as a proportion of airport and port travellers. Uh, but maybe that could be justified uh, if one looks at the number of terrorists in prison and you look at the ethnicity of those persons. Now, I knew that was a really dangerous thing to say. And sure enough, there was a pylon. You know, Al Jazeera broadcast a very uh, hostile piece. Um, various people uh, tried to uh, effectively say drum me out but certainly you know have a have a very strong go luckily i felt i'd made enough contacts in the relevant communities that enough people trusted me and stuck up for me um and in the end these arguments were all you know had out before our supreme court which uh, by a majority um endorsed the the opinion that i'd that i'd put forward but yes you do need courage and, and it's not yeah. just courage to stand up to government you also need the courage to stand up to other interest groups from wherever they may come and even knowing that that your decisions could end up before the Supreme Court. Um, how were you appointed to the role? I was appointed um, by, I was sitting in chambers preparing a case for the following day, and my clerk uh, called up and said, there are three gentlemen from the Home Office who would like to take your advice on an urgent question of law. I said, but I haven't advised the Home Office since 1999, and they disliked my advice so much, I thought they'd never come back. Uh, and he said, oh, yes, but this is... Uh, very uh, new and uh, urgent and no papers required, nothing in writing. So I was quite intrigued. So they came up, they were literally all wearing raincoats and they introduced each other by very secret sounding titles and uh, said that the Home Secretary, Theresa May, who I'd never met and had no political affinity with, had decided I was the best possible person to be this job I'd never heard of. 
Um, but it did sound interesting. I, I had a, a past as a human rights monitor for the Council of Europe, where I visited places like Russia, Ukraine, Turkey, Georgia, to monitor the freedom of the media. And I thought, well, it does sound a bit like that. Mm. You, know, you get to talk to all sorts of people, and then you uh, cross-examine government officials and ministers and tell them what they're doing wrong. So on that basis, I, I took it on. It's now rather uh, more sensibly a job that you apply for. There is a public appointments procedure. Um, everything is very transparent and as it should be. Although I'm afraid neither under the old procedure nor the new have we yet had a female appointment mm. or indeed an appointment of a person of colour. I hope that will soon change. And it's always been a senior barrister, hasn't it? No, no, it used oh, to be okay. explorers. And uh, uh, <laughs> Shackleton was himself a polar explorer. Jellicoe, who followed him, was the head of the Special Boat Service, which is the uh, really exciting bit of the of the uh, armed forces. But since then, it's been pretty much lawyers, yes. The golden yeah. age is uh, in the past. One of the things that, um, I mean, it, it's... I suppose from the public facing side of it, because this is such a secret space and people, I suppose, don't expect to be able to know much about it. They assume it all has to be quite covert. Um, but in fact, you know, I, and I remember the first time I looked at, <laughs> I remember the first time I looked at one of your reports and it's, it astounded me. Like it really blew me away about the the level of, you know, how that line was walked and ha the the detail that was included and the detail that was appropriately redacted. Um, but how actually in that role, there is a great deal you can talk about publicly and explain to people about how things operate. I mean, the annual reports are in and around 200 pages, aren't they? Um, you know, providing this information. Was that a hard line to walk? They are very long, and there are disadvantages to that. And obviously, no politician or no journalist is going to read anything that's more than a very few pages. So there's no chance they were going to read it all. But I figured that important people were going to read the bits that mattered to them and that those bits had to be detailed. The civil service, for a start, had to respect you in the job that you did. It was no good being some grandee who's brought in from outside to write a few elegant pages. You know, I had to demonstrate I understood things as well as they did if they were going to take me seriously. Police. I used to, the thing I liked best about my reports is when I'd go into a police station somewhere in the country and I'd find a well thumbed copy of one of my reports sitting there. That was really uh, good news. Sometimes officers would say, well, the reports gave an accurate feel for how they spent their working lives. It's something that they couldn't really talk to anybody else about. And, and that was um, satisfying. It also meant that you know, academics, students, NGOs can make productive use of, of the reports. And of course, so can parliamentary committees. And so can barristers who pick up the reports and use them in court. <clears throat> so, yes, they are a, a bit of a doorstep. The, the frustration in presenting them to the media is uh, they would always say, well, what does the report say? And I soon learned it was no good saying, well, there are 15 chapters and you know, 112 recommendations. You, you just had to have one answer. Uh, it wasn't necessarily the same answer for the Muslim news as it was for the Belfast Telegraph. You could you could pick different aspects of the report for different audiences, but you had to learn somehow to to pick the point that really mattered and try and find a way of of getting that across. It's no good just burying it on on page seventy eight, or indeed just highlighting it in a conclusion. Uh, this is where social media comes in. Of course, you you, you helpful if you could tweet it. And the right sort of people would would pick it up. Helpful if you could give evidence to Parliament or have a quiet word with the journalist before the release. Um, and and uh, saying uh, so there's going to be something really interesting. I think think you might enjoy doing a short piece on it. So, for example, I discovered um, 
that um, when they stop people at the ports and airports, this is some years ago now, and it's now public knowledge, but it wasn't public knowledge at the time. Uh, I discovered that um, under a power that allowed them to take any possessions uh, to be searched, uh, they were routinely taking mobile phones and thousands of times a year, they were downloading the entire content of that mobile phone um, with no um, uh, statutory limit on how long they could keep it and vastly different practice between different police forces. So I actually um, had a word with the journalist on the Daily Telegraph. You know, they're not a particularly radical newspaper. In fact, they're quite a conservative newspaper, but they have an interest in civil liberties. And so with my help, they ran a story on this. I didn't tell them anything that was classified, of course, because mm. I'd had my report cleared by then and persuaded the government that there was a certain amount I ought to be able to say, including the number of times a year that this happened. And that meant the issue hit the hit the public agenda. It was raised in court. It was raised in parliamentary committees. In the end, Parliament did something about it. So it's a question of being thorough, but selecting what you think really matters and something that might be changeable and promoting that in the right quarters. I mean, because for me, always looking at it, I was just so impressed. You know, like I felt like, yeah, I, I can sleep in my bed at night knowing that these powers are being independently and thoroughly um, reviewed. You know, I could like, you know, as somebody who has those concerns about how these powers are used by the state, like it gave me a lot of reassurance um, reading those reports and the detail of them. Um, Was there much conflict over kind of redactions and what would or wouldn't be included? Uh, there was always an argument, um, a series of arguments. Um, it, it, I did only one report that wasn't published at all, which I was very disappointed about. Um, the, the only redactions they would permit were, well, it, it got to the point where it would have been ridiculous to publish it. But on the whole, they were very sensible and they got more sensible as, as time went on. Uh, I think they could see that where I made it clear something wasn't publicly available, people might ask questions about why. And actually, most of these guys believe they are doing a good job. It doesn't mean they, they always are, but they believe that they are. And in a funny way, they quite want people to understand what they're doing and why they're doing it. So I didn't find, you know, even from the intelligence agencies where you'd think the imperative to secrecy would be the strongest, uh, I found there was less, less pushback than I often expected. I soon learned not to self-censor because things which I might have assumed they wouldn't let through, they sometimes would. Very often it was the politicians. It was the people around the Home Secretary, the Foreign Secretary, who were the strictest on redaction um, because for them it was a question of preserving the mysteries that only they were privy to. You know, if you'd Mm. seen what I'd seen, you know, this refrain of politicians through the ages when it comes to national security. In a sense, this job blows that out of the water because I had seen what they'd seen. And uh, maybe if my conclusion wasn't the same as them, that, uh, that weakened the force of what they had to say so yes it was a it was interesting that's really interesting actually because obviously as this is something quite new it's going to be a cultural shift for all of the agencies involved and we are primarily talking about the guards but the defense services do a certain degree of work in this space as well and, and they're not used to that so it's interesting that they weren't um you know as as resistant um as you might have expected um in terms of, and I know um, you've had a look at the Irish legislation um, and you were saying it's great that to see that their powers to view everything is all clearly set out um, in the legislation um, and they will be like you could be, they could be tasked to, to do other reports, you know, if a particular incident occurs or a particular concern arises. Um, and it's good to see that, you know, 
they submit the reports and actually government must lay them before the houses and they will all be published subject to these redactions as well. Um, so I think a lot has been learned from those experiences. And um, there are a couple of things, though, I've been wondering about. Um, one of them you mentioned to me before we started is the fact that the, the staffing of the office will um, be determined by or come be allocated by the minister. Um what kind of staffing did you have and, and where did you, they come from? When I did a big report, uh, such as the report I did on investigatory powers, surveillance and data retention and so on, which resulted in a, a big new act of parliament, uh, I was always offered a secretariat by the government and I always refused. I said, no, I'll put my own secretariat together and you can pay for them. And I, I wouldn't ask for full-time people, but I would get people in with particular skills. So, for example, for that one, um, I got told of the guy who was in charge of security for the London 2012 Olympics, who'd recently retired, but he knew the security landscape very well, no longer took the government's shilling, uh, but he was very well connected and was very good at paving my way into MI6 and GCHQ and people. But I also took on a, a young firebrand of a human rights barrister in my own chambers, and to watch the two of them arguing was just fantastic. You know, truth comes out of, out of argument sometimes. And I took on somebody who was expert in uh, encryption and the, and the technical side of things. So I, I try and put my own team together um, and get the government to pay them uh, at an hourly or daily rate. And I, I thought that was the way to go. Um, but I can understand the remit of the examiner is so much broader than mine, uh, particularly because it extends to surveillance, interception communications, data retention on a regular basis. And I did a one-off report on those things. But as I understand it, your commissioner is taking over the functions of the judges who used to report on those things every year and will himself or herself have to report on it every year. Um, now, that I can only imagine will be a huge job. I mean, we have uh, an organization in the UK called the Investigatory Powers Commissioner's Office that employs 65 people to do that. And you couldn't do that on an ad hoc basis. These are people, a lot of them, with the technical skills to get inside the computer systems and see how these processes are really working. Has the data been retained for too long? Have they retained the wrong uh, category of data? Was this warrant properly authorized? Were the right uh, considerations taken into account? And it's hard to see how you could do that uh, without some uh, bodies on the ground, in particular bodies with uh, technical skill. And my only advice would be, for what it's worth, is um, this this job really shouldn't look like some small governmental organisation. And the whole point of it is that it's independent of government and mm -hmm. it must look independent of government. And I think a good way of achieving that is to ensure that uh, really independent people are uh, employed by it. Yeah, and I might, I might just... Just for listeners, explain that a little bit, because it is an interesting thing. So at the moment, we have these designated judges that on an annual basis look at all the times that the Guard used powers of interception, surveillance and data retention and kind of do an assessment on whether they were appropriately used um, and so on. And what this legislation does is it kind of says that the examiner will take over those roles and produce annual reports on that, as well as about every, it says at least every three years, producing a report on um, the security legislation. And there is a thing, isn't there, because that those well, surveillance and data retention may or may not be security related. That could be kind of standard investigation stuff, couldn't it? Um, so it I assume so. And it does, it does occupy a lot of people for a long time in the UK, but maybe we do more of this stuff than you do in Ireland. Mm. I? I was a, an expert witness in the, the appeal of uh, Graham O'Dwyer against his 
conviction for murder in Dublin, and I did have the chance to inspect some of the judges' reports uh, as I was giving that evidence. And I think it's fair to say that certainly at that time they were they were not very full reports. I mean, our our investigative powers commissioner's office produces one of these. Um, you know, hundred page plus reports every year with lots of appendices, and it's it's very thorough indeed. I mean, my concern would be, you know, if this annual commitment became so time consuming that it uh, didn't leave time to do the stuff on counter terrorism activity, the stuff on hostile state activity, maybe the stuff on use of immigration laws for national security purposes, which I'm sure you have also in Ireland, which must raise the same interesting issues that they do in the UK. And yet, in respect of which there is only an obligation to report every three years. It'd be a shame if sheer pressure of business meant that those were given less of a priority. But at the end of the day, I guess it's for the examiner to decide where to allocate their efforts and the efforts of their staff if they if they have any staff. Yeah, although I think, I mean, and it's important to say this is a general scheme of a bill. We're quite far from the final legislation. So I think this is okay. something for people, you know, it's great to be able to have these conversations to inform that thinking about, you know, if this is about security legislation, then I feel from the from what I'm getting the sense of, the waters are being a bit muddied here and maybe potentially the office gets a little bit distracted into spaces that, you know, if we really want that oversight of security legislation, it might be, you know, I'd love to see an annual report on the use of security legislation. Yes. Um, it's a difficult one. And particularly when it comes to surveillance, we had the same debate. Do you split off the um, oversight of uh, surveillance for intelligence purposes and treat that differently from bog standard police surveillance of drug dealers? Um, and gangs and so on. And I was always rather against that because once you have your own independent you know, intelligence agency, we have MI5, it's our internal security service, there is often a tendency to think, oh, we're different from the police. You know, they make TV series about us called Spooks and um, we operate in the shadows and we're a bit more glamorous and we're not really subject to the same rules as everybody else. And I think if you talk to ITCO, which is the body that has oversight both of the intelligence agencies and of the police, they devote quite a bit of effort to reminding the intelligence agencies that they're subject to exactly the same legal principles as everybody else. And they yeah. can't infringe people's privacy without a legitimate excuse any yeah. more than the police can. So yeah. in a way, there is something to be said for um, a system of review that embraces both. You know, whether the examiner is is the right person to do it all, I suppose, is a, is a question of, of resourcing. All I'm saying is it would be a shame if the examiner were distracted yeah. from the work on the uh, CT and the hostile state activity by the work that they have to do on surveillance, which could be pretty time consuming. Yeah, because, uh, and this is the important point, both need done. You know, we need to have mm. oversight of how surveillance powers and so on are being used and how security powers are being used. And it shouldn't be that one takes priority over the other in any way. Um, so I think that's going to be a really important point to be teased through um, as the legislation develops and as the role develops. Um, because, and I should say, like the legislation says, at least every three years, there will be a report on mm. these. So they could do it annually. They could do it every six months. Um, and we've seen that. I think it's been interesting. Um, listeners will know, like the policing authority actually submits reports every six months on how the guards are getting on at performing their policing functions, mm. um, which is just a really wonderful um 
way to kind of see and understand uh, uh, and engage with how policing is done in the country um and that there's a lot to be gained from um you know i think i do think three every three years would be disappointing um and things could be missed quite easily because dust settles so quickly people forget about what happened three years ago you know um Maybe just as a as a final question, is there is there any other advice you would give a state like Ireland that is stepping into these waters and creating such a role? I'm just really impressed that you are creating it. I'm not sure that if the job uh, didn't exist in the UK, we would be creating it now. I don't think we're in that uh, political space. You're the third country in the world after the UK and Australia to do it. Um, I did notice that the job could be filled not only by a barrister solicitor, but by, I think, a serving or retired judge. I would slightly question whether it would be right for a serving judge to do the job, simply because if you're going to do it well, you need to some extent to capture the public attention. And you need to do that by expressing opinions on things. Uh, now, of course, judges express opinions, but only after they've, uh, in, in the very formal constraints of a, of a judgment. And I wouldn't want whoever did this job to feel inhibited from saying something controversial or uh, a thing that a lot of people wouldn't want to hear uh, by the idea that they would soon be back hearing cases again and um, uh, and couldn't really be seen to have been a public figure. So that's maybe something to, to think about. Uh, I, I think it is, a, you know, in order to be effective, you, yes, you have to be thorough, but there's no point being thorough if people don't know about what you're doing. And that does require some recourse to slightly grubbier skills of of, if not self-promotion, at least the promotion of uh, things you think are important. And they certainly don't come naturally to uh, to all serving judges, uh, nor should they. Mm, yeah, it's a, it's a different function, isn't it? Um, okay, well, thank you so much, David Anderson, for joining us. Um, it's really wonderful to get these insights into the position and what you did and your reflections on it as, as the legislative process proceeds in Ireland. And I hope listeners will reflect on what we want that role to be um, and what functions it should have and what powers it should have. Um, so thank you very much for listening. Um, as ever, please subscribe and support at patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. And we'll be back soon listening, deconstructing some more of that enormous piece of legislation. <laughs> <laughs>